0: This podcast contains coarse language, dark humor, descriptions of violence, and controversial opinions. Listener discretion is advised. Hey, lovely consumer of last meals, can you do me a favor? If you like my murder stories, tell a friend. Share this episode on your internet somewhere. And if you're looking for more recent stories, come hang out on Rumble on Thursday or Friday nights. Really depends on the week. But check both days and I may be there. Show starts at 10 p.m. Mountain Time, sometimes 9.30. I'm so professional, I know. Ratings and reviews are also appreciated. A few seconds of your time goes a long way in spreading the word about my podcast Also, apologies for any dog noises you might hear in this one. My crackhead in a wolf costume is keeping me company tonight. I've been going through the emotional shit again. My voice is probably a little off this week, and I'm recording this the date before it comes out. Been a hell of a fucking month, let me tell you. Much love to all of you. I don't think I need to tell you that the death penalty is a very controversial issue in the US and around the world. Opponents of it say that it's barbaric and should be abolished everywhere. Those in favor of it see it as a necessary punishment to be reserved for the worst kinds of crimes. And then there's me. I'm somewhere in the middle, toward the pro-death penalty side. It is a necessary evil. My only qualms with it are that the government is inept as all hell and shouldn't have the power to execute citizens. They fuck up. A lot. Many innocent people have been put to death because of judicial failures. Of the 50 states in the U.S., 23 have outright abolished the death penalty. They have decided that they want no part in government-sanctioned homicide. Many other countries around the world have also decided that they don't want to participate in executing people, even if they deserve it. Today, we'll be focusing on the U.S., on these high and mighty states that have decided to abolish capital punishment in favor of life without parole. They'd rather pay to feed and house convicted murderers than put an end to them. Maybe I'm just biased, but it seems to me that the states without the death penalty tend to have the most despicable crimes. Wisconsin especially, holy shit. The Midwest is a fucking disaster. So grab a true crime book, and some snacks for the road. Today, we're traveling across the United States to talk about the last people to be executed before the death penalty was abolished. A few months ago, we were stuck on the East Coast for like, three straight weeks, which didn't provide a lot of opportunities for last meals. Maine was one of those states where we had to travel somewhere else to eventually get the last meal. Or did we not get one that time? I don't remember. You can go back and listen to it. I know it was a very interesting one. Maine abolished the death penalty all the way back in 1887, leaving very little room for details regarding the last hours of the condemned Early on the morning of September 4th, 1883, Daniel Wilkinson and a man named John Hewitt tried to break into a store in Bath, Maine. Key word here is tried. The police showed up and caught the men in the act. Officer Kingsley, who had only been on the force for two months, was out checking the doors of local businesses that night. He was unable to see clearly as the gas street lamps had gone out earlier in the night. Gas street lamps. Jesus Christ. Though he couldn't actually see anyone, he could hear some noise near a business on Broad Street. He called out, What's going on there? and heard footsteps. After ordering the suspects to stop, he blew his whistle and fired a warning shot. The officer called out to the men and told them to stop or he'd shoot. One of them turned to look at him and said, You wouldn't shoot, would you? Famous last words of a man who was stabbed to death. What are you gonna do, stab me? Anyway, Anyway, Officer Kingsley did eventually shoot at the men, but he missed. As Wilkinson and Hewitt were running away from Officer Kingsley, they collided with Constable William Lawrence. Like, actually, ran into him. These men apparently do not pay very close attention to their surroundings. Immediately after bumping into Constable Lawrence, Wilkinson shot him in the head with a 32 caliber revolver. An autopsy later found that the bullet went directly into his brain and killed him before he even had a chance to draw his weapon. Constable William Lawrence was a beloved member of his community and was known to be a very good cop. His brothers in blue did everything they could to try to find his killer. Initially, they accused Officer Kingsley of accidentally shooting William, but after hiring a private detective by the name of James Wood, a confession was obtained by the actual killer, Daniel Wilkinson. The city of Bath was not equipped to handle a homicide case, so they decided to hire someone from Boston to work on it instead. Detective Wood was paid $10 per day plus expenses. He was also offered a $1,000 reward by the mayor, but he declined it. This is 1800s money, so don't think for a second that he was getting ripped off. It didn't take long for Detective Wood to find his man. Just one week after the murder, he was arraigned. As I've said before, technology in this time was pretty limited. Luck, combined with some smart detective work, would help catch the man who was responsible. Detective Wood had been keeping an eye on the boarding houses in Portland. One landlady came forward and told him that she hadn't seen or heard from two of her boarders in a while, but still had their possessions. It was like they'd just disappeared. After searching their belongings, the detective found some oddly shaped matchsticks that were similar to those found at the scene of a recent burglary in Brunswick. I don't know Maine yet, but Brunswick is just a few miles south of Bath. Going on a hunch, Detective Wood decided not to ignore the similarities between the two crimes. Wilkinson was tracked down and arrested in Bangor. John Hewitt fled the country. And made his way back to England. I can't really find anything on what happened to him after he left, but due to a treaty that had recently been signed, he was not extradited back to the U.S. Daniel Wilkinson was executed by hanging on November 25th, 1885. His death was not a quick drop in a sudden stop. It was agonizing. He hung by his neck and slowly strangled to death. Wilkinson was the last person to be executed by the state of Maine. They abolished capital punishment in 1887. Due to the time period, I can't find anything on his last words or last meal. However, if you ever find yourself in Bath, Maine, you can take a trip to the Thornhead Preserve and hike up a trail to a place called Murderer's Cave. It's basically just a pile of rocks with enough space inside to hide out, which is exactly what Daniel Wilkinson and John Hewitt did. Maybe I'll check this place out when I eventually decide to sever my ties to Utah and go north. Washington is a beautiful state on the opposite side of the country from our first case. It's a very green state with vast forests and what I imagine is near constant rain. And then there's Seattle. What a fucking shithole that place is. And yeah, you heard me correctly. I said Washington. I like to give my friend Jack, who helps with the face swaps and turned me into Gary Busey in my Rumble intro, shit about living in Washington. He once said that it pisses him off when people call it Washington, so that's what I'm gonna do. Forever. They want to give me shit about not being able to say the word mountain correctly, so Washington it is. We've talked a lot about how fucked up the system is. Especially in regards to letting violent offenders out into the world. Sex offenders, especially. You'd think that the justice system would learn its lesson after so many people get parole and then go back out and fuck up again. You'd think, but that's not how it usually goes. Cal Brown was one of those offenders that no amount of prison time could fix. A man truly in need of a death sentence. His list of convictions was long and spanned over more than a decade. In 1977, he assaulted a woman in a California shopping center with a knife. Sometime in 1984, he was charged with attempted assault on a 24-year-old woman in Corvallis, Oregon. This victim wasn't just a random stranger in a shopping center. Brown had been introduced to her by her babysitter sometime prior to the attack. On a random day in 1984, he appeared at her house and convinced her to let him in so he could rest his sprained leg. The woman was a very kind soul and went out of her way to call him a cab when she turned away from brown he threw a leather belt over her head in an attempt to choke her she was yanked off her feet and fell down landing on her stomach the belt was still around her neck and brown was behind her when the young woman rolled onto her side she saw her attacker staring her in the face with wild eyes as brown held her the woman screamed and a nearby police officer came to help after brown was arrested he was found to have duct tape and a knife in his backpack. To make this already terrifying case even worse, the woman's two young sons were home when she was attacked. This crime would land him seven and a half years in the slammer and the designation of dangerous offender. He was paroled on March 25th, 1991. After Brown was released, the district attorney sent a letter to his parole officer to explain that he was a dangerous man. In fact, one of the most dangerous men he'd ever prosecuted. The DA went on to remark that unless he has undergone a remarkable transformation in prison, he will remain a potential mutilator and killer of women. There might be some bias there, as this guy was the prosecutor in Brown's case, But you also have to remember, this dude saw all the evidence and knew exactly what kind of creep he was dealing with. It's a damn shame no one listened to him. A mere two months would pass before Brown would have the state of Washington questioning their decision to let him out. Holly Carol Washa was a Nebraska native who came to Seattle in pursuit of bigger dreams. She left the small city of Ogallala in February of 1988 to attend a course at the International Air Academy in Vancouver. She had big city dreams of becoming a flight attendant. There's not much available online about her early life, but it is very clear that her death greatly affected her family. On May 23rd, 1991, an arrest warrant was issued for Brown at the request of his parole officer, who hadn't heard from him in a while. This very same day. God, that gives me chills thinking about it. Brown carjacked a woman named Holly in a parking lot near the SeaTac airport. He told her to drive or die, but eventually made her get into the passenger seat so he could tie her up. After getting back to his motel, Brown forced Holly to get undressed and then tied her to the bed. She was raped and tortured for hours on this first night. The next day, he made Holly call in sick to her job and then continued his assault. This time, he sexually assaulted her with a handful of different foreign objects, including a bottle. Holly was whipped and shocked with an electrical cord for hours. Tell me again why this guy was let out. After he got tired of brutalizing this poor woman, Brown threw Holly into the trunk of her own car, slit her throat, stabbed her, and left her to bleed out in a parking lot. She was found a few days later. After murdering Holly, Brown caught a flight to Palm Springs, California, where he was set to meet up with a woman he'd spoken to on an airplane a few days earlier. This woman's name was Susan. The pair got a hotel room, and Brown was giving her a back rub when he suddenly yanked her arms behind her back and told her not to scream. Unfortunately, she did scream, and Brown responded to this by slitting her throat. After this, he handcuffed Susan and held a knife to her heart. He attempted to stop the bleeding by ghetto rigging a bandage out of sanitary pads and nylon stockings. This was followed by a sexual assault, and Susan being forced to write Brown a check for $4,000. Once he left the room to get more bandages, Susan called the front desk and had them get the police. Susan ultimately survived, and gave a description of Brown to the cops. Brown was arrested in the hotel parking lot almost immediately. He confessed to Susan's attack, but also to the murder of Holly Washa. Brown pled guilty in California and was sentenced to life in prison. But Washington had other plans. He was convicted of aggravated first-degree murder by his jury and handed a death sentence. This was followed by many years of appeals. I mean, many years of appeals. The courts, as they often do, went back and forth on whether or not to uphold the conviction and death sentence. In 2005, the Court of Appeals reversed the conviction because of an alleged error in jury selection. This decision was reversed in 2007, when the US Supreme Court found that Brown had waived any challenge to jury selection after he didn't object to one of his jurors being excused. In 2009, a stay of execution was issued just hours before Brown was supposed to be put to death. He had filed a last-minute appeal challenging the lethal injection protocol. And in July of 2010, the Washington Supreme Court rejected his final appeal and lifted the stay. Cal Coburn Brown was executed by lethal injection on September 10th, 2010. In all the years he spent in prison, he showed no remorse for his crimes. Even on his last day, in his last statement, he didn't apologize to Holly's family. In one last attempt to get out of his well-deserved punishment, Brown wrote to the governor to ask for clemency. Christine Gregoire, the governor of Washington at the time, said in a statement that the torture, rape, and murder of Holly Washa were horrible acts of brutality. My sympathies and prayers are with Holly Washa's family, who has suffered immeasurably from Cal Brown's actions. No one can do anything to take away or lessen their pain. As a mother... My heart goes out to them for their tragic loss. I pray for Holly Washa. I will also pray for Cal Brown." Brown's last words were a very long statement, which included no apology to Holly's family. He said he'd been treated well in prison, but that he was frustrated that serial killers with more victims got life in prison while he was put to death. I only killed one victim. I cannot really see that there is true justice. Hopefully, sometime in the future, that gets straightened out. His final statement ended with, Thank you. God bless you. God bless my family. His last meal was pizza, apple pie, and root beer. Brown was the last person executed by the state of Washington before they abolished the death penalty in 2018. On my quest for happiness, and when I say happiness, I mean a life outside of this salty desert wasteland, I've looked at a lot of states. Alaska is my number one choice, Maine is a very close second, but along the northern border of the US, there's another state that I considered moving to simply because of how desolate and quiet it is. Joseph Duncan, who was convicted of murdering Shasta Shastagroni's family, kidnapping her and her brother, and many other terribly disgusting crimes, actually spent quite a bit of time in this state. Maybe, uh, that's what drove him crazy. My father-in-law was stationed here when he was in the Air Force and has reiterated to me that it's just nothing. Like, there ain't shit to do except work on an oil rig or be in the military. I guess that's kind of always been the case in North Dakota. Ain't shit to do except camp by the railroad tracks and commit robberies. On the morning of August 26th, 1902, three brothers were camped near some railroad tracks on the west side of Fargo. Three masked men appeared and began attacking the brothers. This was an attempted robbery. Harold Sweet was the oldest of the brothers and fought back. If only he'd been carrying a gun. Harold was shot in the abdomen, but his brothers were able to subdue the gunman and keep him contained until the police arrived. Harold died of his injuries the next day, and the man his brothers had captured was charged with murder. This man's name was John Rooney. Rooney was a career criminal, and at the time of Harold's murder, he was also broke. There is a glaring motive, if I've ever seen one. Rooney proclaimed his innocence and instead shifted the blame onto one of his partners, known only as... Kansas Slim. Hell of a fucking name. This was pointless, though. The state convicted Rooney of Harold's murder and sentenced him to hang. For some reason, two local attorneys took an interest in this broke criminal and did everything they could to stay his execution. They were, in fact, successful three different times. John Rooney was executed by hanging on October 17th, 1905. He went to his grave, claiming that he was dying for another man's deed. Though he stuck to his guns, no pun intended, Rooney was very calm in his final days. As he was led to the gallows, he had on new clothes and was also holding an unlit cigar between his teeth. Rooney's hanging was one of just a few I've researched that they didn't fuck up. It was instantaneous. But did North Dakota hang an innocent man? After all, he was more than willing to admit he'd gone with his accomplices to rob the Sweet Brothers, but wouldn't accept the charge of murder. I guess we'll never know. Rooney's last words took a full nine minutes to express, so I'll leave you with the final sentence he uttered before the trap door opened. The light is gone. God have mercy. Goodbye, gentlemen. Light is shut out forever. Light shut out forevermore. His last meal was fried wild duck, apples, grapes, oranges, celery, bread with butter, cake, and milk. Kind of surprised us when had a last meal, to be completely honest with you. Rooney was the last person to be put to death by the state of North Dakota before they abolished capital punishment in 1973. Y'all know how much I love talking shit on 1800s technology. If last meals are my bread and butter and judicial failure is my gravy, then 1800s forensics and evidence is my cranberry sauce. This was a time when you could be charged and convicted for just being near a crime scene within a period of time surrounding that crime. It's laughable now, but people lost their lives over it. People who may not have been actually guilty. On July 23rd, 1850, neighbors of John McCaffrey and his wife Bridget heard a woman screaming. They ran over to where the noise was coming from and found the young woman in a cistern. She had drowned. Her husband John was an immigrant from Ireland who came to Wisconsin to be a farmer. Because it's always the husband. Literally always. They charged him with Bridget's murder, and he was later sentenced to hang. John McCaffrey was executed by hanging on August 21st, 1851. You know, it does look like he could have been responsible. But did anyone ever think that maybe this was an accident? Did they have any real evidence, or did they just point the finger at him because he was the victim's husband? His execution was so botched, holy shit. They hung him from a tree in Kenosha, where he struggled for more than 20 minutes. Nearly 3,000 people watched him slowly strangle to death. McCaffrey's last words were I was the cause of the death of my wife, and I hope my fate will be a warning to you all. I forgive all my enemies. I forgive all the witnesses against me. I guess he really was guilty. McCaffrey was the first and only person to be executed by the state of Wisconsin therefore also making him the last to be executed here before they abolished the death penalty in 1853. Baltimore is such a shitty place, a crime-filled hellscape that no sane person would willingly set foot in. The crimes that led to many, if not all, of Maryland's executions were heinous, cold, bone-chilling. Oh, this next case ain't about Maryland. I just wanted to bitch about it for a minute, because even months after that episode came out, I'm still very bitter about it. (laughs) This next case should be cause to never let anyone out on parole again. Very reminiscent of the Maryland episode. For whatever reason, it brought about the end of capital punishment in yet another East Coast state. 57 arrests, 145 misdemeanor charges, 33 felonies, one of which was the rape of a pregnant woman. That last one landed Shannon Johnson a charge of fourth-degree rape. I didn't even know there was a fourth-degree. All of these arrests and charges, and there was yet another crime that Johnson was suspected of. The shooting of his stepdad. Johnson was just 22, and had a rap sheet the length of a fucking CVS receipt. Why do we let violent offenders out? On September 24th, 2006, Johnson took a trip to the home of his ex-girlfriend, Lakeisha. They had broken up due to Johnson being an abusive piece of shit. I haven't seen a list of all his charges, but I'd be willing to bet that there's at least a couple domestic violences on there. It's only fitting. Abusers always seem to think they can convince their victims to reconcile. That's why Johnson went to her house that day, but instead of Lakeisha, he encountered her new boyfriend, Cameron Hamlin. Obviously enraged by the sight of Cameron and Lakeisha sitting in a car together, Johnson pulled a gun and began firing indiscriminately into the car. Cameron was fatally wounded, but Lakeisha was unharmed. After Johnson left, she bolted to her grandma's house and called the police. They advised her not to go home until Johnson was caught. It's not always as simple as don't go home. Hell, I've felt like a stranger in my own house for months now, but I don't have any choice but to be here. Still sharing a bed. Sharing groceries, thankfully. Not as much as before, Uh, sharing everything with a man who has spent the better part of a year treating me like absolute shit. For the record, there's never been any physical abuse, but anyone who's gone through it knows that emotional abuse is just as bad. Being neglected fucking sucks. Being blatantly ignored fucking sucks. Being cheated on and lied to and gaslit about it. Yeah, it fucking sucks. But not nearly as bad as being ambushed when you go home to get something for your child. Lakeisha needed to get some clothes for her son. Little did she know, that Johnson had been stalking her. As she sat in her car on November 10th, he ran toward her and shot her. She was hit, but his gun jammed and he took off. Lakeisha thankfully survived and was able to identify her ex as her attacker. Johnson was apprehended by Wilmington police on November 15th, 2006. About a year and a half later, he was convicted of the first-degree murder of Cameron Hamlin. This earned him a death sentence. In addition to the crime he was obviously guilty of, Johnson was also accused of trying to hire an inmate who would be getting out soon to go and kill Lakeisha. After his death sentence was upheld by the Supreme Court, Johnson expressed that he did not want to pursue any more appeals. Shannon Johnson was executed by lethal injection on April 20th, 2012. He was just 28 years old at the time of his death. Think about that for a second. A 28-year-old man with 58 arrests and more than 179 charges. I'm 29 and haven't gotten so much as a speeding ticket. That's probably because the cops out here need to get craftier, but you get my point. Federal public defenders tried twice to fight for Johnson without his consent, claiming he was incompetent. A state judge, rightfully so, concluded that he was not incompetent. After his execution, the lethal injection drugs being held by the state of Delaware expired, which left them with no way to execute inmates. Johnson's last words were, ironically enough, Loyalty is important. Without loyalty, you have nothing. Death before dishonor. Followed by a statement made in Arabic that I will be unable to read to you. His last meal was chicken lo mein, wheat bread with margarine, carrots, cake, and iced tea. Shannon Johnson was the last person to be put to death by the state of Delaware before they abolished the death penalty in 2016. I'm left with one question here, and it's really fucking my head up. Who in God's name would choose margarine over butter on their last meal bread? That shit's like soft plastic for fuck's sake. Don't bring a knife to a gunfight. You'll never win. As I like to say, stay strapped or get clapped. Always carry a weapon with you, whether you're a gun person or not. You quite literally never know when a random motherfucker is going to come at you. A native of Burlington, Vermont, Donald DeMagg was no saint. Like, at all. He was a fucking mess. There's not a ton of information on his early life, but he was convicted of murdering 81-year-old Francis Ratio in 1948. Because of his epilepsy, the jury decided to spare him from a death sentence and give him life in prison instead. Must just be the time, but 1940s prisons had really shitty security. DeMag escaped from the Vermont State Prison and tried to get into Canada, but was captured just 15 days later and thrown into a cell with a man named Francis Blair. Unlike DeMag, Blair wasn't doing time for murder, just a robbery. The two struck up somewhat of a friendship that would lead them down a very dark path. On July 30th, 1952, Demag decided to make another break for it. He and Blair were out in the prison yard that day and noticed a heavy truck with the keys inside. A prison driver had left the keys and the truck unattended, probably not thinking anything of it. Again, what the fuck is up with prisons of this era? Did no one care? Like, is this Vermont's version of the Shawshank Redemption? Demag and Blair drove the truck through the prison's steel gates and continued on their journey until it ran out of gas. By some stroke of luck, the pair managed to avoid being caught after abandoning their stolen vehicle. Four days later, on August 3rd, the men entered the home of Ronald Weatherup by going through his kitchen window. The man came down the stairs to see what the noise was, and Blair hit him with an iron bar to knock him out. Being a very smart woman, Mrs. Elizabeth Weatherup had heard the commotion and locked herself in a bathroom. Unfortunately for her, that bathroom door would be no match for Blair's iron bar. After smashing the door open, Blair beat the retired teacher to death. The men changed clothes to cover their tracks before grabbing the valuables and getting the hell out of there. Bloodhounds would later track the men to a spot behind a stone fence. They were completely surrounded and had no choice but to surrender. Both men were convicted of first-degree murder and sentenced to death. Francis Blair was executed by electrocution on February 8, 1954. A man whose only crime to the point he met DeMag was robbery. Something they can't give you a death sentence for. Hell, they can't even give you life in prison. But he threw it all away just to get out a little bit earlier. Donald Edward DeMag was executed by electrocution on December 8th, 1954. He was just a week shy of his 31st birthday. This is an example of one of those criminals who just doesn't seem to learn from their mistakes. Probably would have hit a tunnel behind a poster and crawled out the poop pipe to the crap swamp if they didn't execute him when they did. These two men beat a couple to death with an iron bar. Demag's previous conviction was for murdering an old man with a fireplace poker. People like this don't change. Blair's last words are unavailable, but his last meal was pork chops, french fries, vanilla ice cream, and coffee. Demag had no final requests, and his last words are also unavailable. His last meal was two pork chops, a baked potato, chocolate cake, chocolate ice cream, and chocolate milk. The man really fucking loved chocolate, apparently. Donald DeMagg was the last person to be executed by the state of Vermont before they abolished capital punishment in 1965. However, he was not the last person to be sentenced to death here. Perhaps we'll talk more about that man in a few months when we get to Vermont. So... Before a state totally abolishes the death penalty, there's an additional optional step, a moratorium. The definition of that is a temporary prohibition of an activity. I've considered doing an episode entirely about states with moratoriums on capital punishment, but I've already covered one of the three states that currently has one. If memory serves me correctly, which it probably doesn't, Arizona was the only state I've covered so far that currently has a moratorium on capital punishment. I don't even think it's a legitimate one. It's more like a, we need to calm down on executions until we figure this shit out. Quite a few states have that, but Oregon is one of just three states with an actual moratorium that's been ordered by the governor. According to the Constitution of Oregon, the death penalty is a required option when it comes to punishing someone for capital murder. But they haven't actually executed anyone since 1997. Two people have been put to death in Oregon since capital punishment was reinstated in the 70s, but I'm saving the more interesting one for when we get to the Northwest. This next guy didn't have as many victims, and his crimes weren't quite as fucked up, but he has a strange story regardless. There's not a lot available on the early life of Harry Moore, but it's safe to say that he was an odd duck. Very fucked in the head. Must be something about the Northwest. Looking at you, Jack. Jack. Moore's family history was, um, how do I put this? Incesty? He was married to two of his nieces at different points in his life. His half-sister, oh wait, I mean, mother-in-law, actually it's both, Barbara Cunningham, was close to one of these nieces. Moore feared that she and her husband would run off with his estranged wife-niece to Vegas and expose his baby daughter to a life of sin. On June 5th, 1992, Moore drove to a post office in Salem and shot Thomas Laurie in the face. Thomas was Barbara's husband. After this first shooting, Moore drove to Barbara's house and shot her in the abdomen. Not sure if that killed her, he finished her off with three shots to the head. All of this carnage. Because he didn't want his baby to be exposed to drugs and prostitution. Incest is totally fine. But the vices you can find in Nevada aren't. Makes perfect fucking sense. Moore was sentenced to death on July 20th, 1993. There's not a whole lot available on this crime, or even how he was caught. Though I'm pretty sure it was obvious who the guilty party was in this case. The man looks Off. Harry Charles Moore was executed by lethal injection on May 16th, 1997. In an effort to speed up the judicial process, he threatened to sue anyone who tried to appeal his death sentence. He even tried to get the Supreme Court to drop his automatic appeal. This execution was entirely voluntary. Again, the van looks off. I can almost see how the gears turn in his head. This crime screams West Virginia, but it's fucking Oregon. I've heard that the Pacific Northwest is a bit fucky, but I always thought it was just superstition. Just doomsday preppers and junkies up there. Moore's last words were, um, eerie. As he lay on the gurney, he whispered, I want the last word I say to be Jennifer. J-E-N-N-I-F-E-R that's the name of his baby daughter the one he conceived with his niece his last meal was also very fucking odd considering the other ones i've seen not quite as weird as aloe juice but still two red apples two green apples a tray of fresh fruit and two two liters of coke diabetic shock was going to get him before them drugs had a chance Moore was the last person executed by the state of Oregon before they put an official moratorium on it in 2011. More recently, in 2022, Governor Kate Brown commuted the sentence of Oregon's death row inmates and had the execution chamber dismantled. Typical fucking demon crat. That one was quite a ride, wasn't it? all over this great nation and into some states that really should consider reinstating the death penalty. If this isn't your first last meal, you'll already know where I stand on that issue. We should have it available everywhere. Don't necessarily have to use it, but have it as an option to keep sick motherfuckers in check, especially in the Midwest. Fuck. If you enjoyed this episode, write a random politician and tell them to bring last meals back to states where they've been abolished. You can get me on Instagram and Twitter, at LastMealPod. Join me live on Rumble, either Thursday or Friday nights, for some recent crime news and dick jokes with my favorite Canadian. Or sometimes with the only Californian I like. Hell, maybe one of these days I'll get Washington Jack on there with me. I'll be back next week with an episode about another desert shithole that, ironically enough, does not have the death penalty anymore. I'm gonna end this one with a quote by someone I never imagined I'd agree with, Nancy Reagan. I believe that people would be alive today if there were a death penalty. See you next time.